Hey there, listeners. Galen Drew here. I just wanted to give you a heads up before we begin that we did have some audio issues with the recording today. Our apologies there. We still think it's a conversation worth listening to. So here it is. It's your first opportunity in over two years to press the flesh, really make an impression. Press the flesh. God, what a phrase. That's the worst phrase. I think maybe if I could ban one phrase, it would be that. I feel like people always, you know, up in arms about moist, but press the flesh is a lot worse. (laughs) Yeah, it's not good. It just also makes handshaking feel gross. Like it's got to be really firm, you know. It might even be moist. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drake. Today, we're going to take a look at what the state-level debates over abortion might look like if Roe v. Wade is ultimately overturned. Currently, 13 states have trigger laws that would quickly ban abortion. Other states have bans that have been on the books since before Roe was decided that could be enforced again. But there are still numerous Republican-controlled states where abortion would be legal for some period of pregnancy. Would that remain the case? And will the issue motivate voters in states like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, where this fall's election could change those states from divided government to fully Republican controlled? Also, we're gonna take a look at some polling that suggests President Biden has disproportionately lost ground with traditionally Democratic-leaning voting groups, like young people and Black and Hispanic voters. We'll see how that compares with recent presidents and ask whether there's anything he could do to shore up support. Here with me to discuss is Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Hey, Nate. Hey, how are you? Doing well. Another Monday, but at least it's sunny. We had a lot of rain this weekend, so I am looking forward to what looks like a week of 70-degree weather in New York. Really that time of year where like the weather makes a huge difference. How are you, Nate? I'm good. That was good weather analysis, Galen. Right? It's a high leverage month for weather here. May can be a great month, can be kind of disappointing. I know. It was in the 40s and 50s on rainy this weekend. And then next weekend, it's going to be like mid 70s. Feels like living in different worlds. Also with us is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah, how's it going? How are you managing the weather? (laughs) Good. I know it was a very March weekend. Not here for it. Come on, May, but I'm good. Nice to see you guys. Likewise, and also with us is senior writer and legal reporter Amelia Thompson-DeVoe. Amelia, get your weather analysis in there. I feel like I live in Chicago again, which is not a good thing. So looking forward to some non-Chicago May. That is a pretty harsh weather analysis. I love Chicago, but May in Chicago was terrible. I'll stand by that. Yeah. I remember coming out of a Wisconsin winter, 35 degrees, feeling like what 55, 60 feels like in New York. You know, it's like warm enough to sit outside almost when it's 35 degrees and like have a coffee. (laughs) Anyway, we got a lot to cover today, so let's get to it. Amelia, let's begin with you. We're talking about a world in which the draft opinion that we all saw last week were to be quite similar to the ultimate result and that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. In that scenario, in how many states do we either know or expect that abortion would be outright banned? So it sort of depends on the type of ban that you're talking about here. So there are 13 states that have trigger laws. So those are pretty straightforward. They say if Roe is overturned, the law is triggered, 
abortion is banned. There is another state, Alabama, which banned abortion a few years ago, and that's been held up in the courts. But presumably if Roe were overturned, that would go back into effect. And then there are states where the legal landscape is a little bit trickier. So nine states, according to the Guttmacher Institute, this is all from the Guttmacher Institute. They have a really helpful roundup if anyone wants to take a look and see where their state falls. But they have abortion bans from before Roe. In some cases, these are well before Roe. These are, you know, 100, 150-year-old laws that ban abortion. And so presumably if Roe is overturned, those laws go back into effect. Other states have unconstitutional restrictions that are currently blocked by the courts, could be brought back by a court order in Roe's absence. And then There are states where lawmakers have been very clear about their intent to ban abortion and they have the means to do it, which is to say they have the numbers in the state legislatures. Guttmacher estimates that overall it's 23 states that have laws that could be used to restrict the legal status of abortion. And does that mean completely as in there's no weak limit, it's just outright banned? So it depends on the state. I think it's fair to say that about 15 states are going to ban abortion almost immediately. And then we have those unenforced pre-Roe bans, which, for example, Michigan is an interesting case. They have one of those. They have a Democratic governor. She is currently suing to try to get that law overturned in state court. Because what could happen is if that goes into effect, even if the state has a Democratic governor or a Democratic attorney general... There isn't really anything to stop like a local prosecutor from charging people under that statute. So it's going to be sort of an interesting legal gray area there. And then there's another sort of interesting question about there are states like Georgia, which passed a six-week abortion ban a few years ago. Do they go all the way and ban abortion? And then I'll add, there's another category. Sorry, this is this is very complicated, but it's just a preview of what we're in for in a few months if this happens, where state constitutions have protected abortions. So Kansas is a really interesting example of that. This is a state where lawmakers are super anti-abortion, really want to put lots of abortion restrictions into place, but the state Supreme Court has said that abortion is protected under the state constitution. So there's actually going to be a vote in a few months on a constitutional amendment that would change that in the Kansas constitution. But I think the Center for Reproductive Rights estimates that there are about like 10 or 11 states where abortion is protected to some extent under the state constitution. Another state that falls into that category is Florida. You can see there will be some states where the outcome is pretty fast and clear. And then there's kind of a middle category of about 10 states where abortion could be banned completely. It sort of seems like the environment might allow for that. But also there are going to have to be some choices by prosecutors, courts, policymakers about how much to ban abortion. And it's likely that we could be heading for some disputes. Just to confirm, the 23 states that you mentioned where there would be some kind of ban, is that from inception? Are there any excuses or reasons that abortion would be legal in those states? Like how strict are those bans in the 23 states that you mentioned? Well, it varies. I mean, the trigger bans would just ban abortion overall. Something like Alabama's abortion ban just bans abortion overall. But then you're going to get into interesting categories where, uh, double checking this, I'm pretty sure that 
Arizona has a pre-Roe abortion ban, but the state also passed a 15-week abortion ban earlier this year. And the governor, Doug Ducey, has said that he would prioritize enforcement of the 15-week abortion ban over the much older pre-Roe ban. So that gets a little bit complicated because it's like not really up to the governor whether people get charged under a state statute that is still in effect. Do they repeal the pre-Roe ban? Could do that. I don't know if they want to do that politically, but it's going to put prosecutors, courts, policymakers, again, in a handful of states in a position where they're having to decide which laws do we actually want to be our laws in this state? Because they could be banned pretty easily, but is that actually what Republicans in a purple state like Arizona want? Okay, so we're going to talk mostly about state-level politics today. But before we do go down that road, I should mention that it was reported over the weekend that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has said that a national abortion ban, quote, is possible if Roe is overturned. How likely is it in the short to medium term that Republicans would have a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate in favor of a ban or that they would be willing to end the filibuster to pass a national ban? Nate? I don't think the filibuster is very powerful protection against much of anything. I would think Republicans might, if they have, say, 55 senators, find some reason to redefine the filibuster. They can certainly cite plenty of Democrats saying that we need to get rid of the filibuster. So I think it's much fuzzier math than saying, what are the chances they could get to 60? It's not crazy that they could get to 60 seats. I mean, the average Senate seat has something like a six and a half point GOP bias because of the fact that all states get the same number of senators and the median state is red and white and rural compared to the country as a whole. So it's not impossible they could get 60. It's also not impossible they could get 54, 55, it depends on what McConnell wants to do at that point. Right. Which he said that he would keep the filibuster in place. Of course, we would have to see. If you were strictly concerned about abortion rights, then you should probably be pro-filibuster. It's a fig leaf, and the fig leaf might only matter if particular conditions prevail where if you are a Republican senator in a purple state, you are under pressure from activists in your base to pass this abortion ban. It's probably not going to be good for you electorally. So maybe you wouldn't mind having the filibuster as a way to duck having to take a vote, right? And so if there are some in that category, there might be a range that is plausible for 2025, where there are just a couple of votes. No one doubts that Joe Manchin actually sort of cares about the filibuster. You know, he might be the one of two or three, right? Certainly, it tells you that the number of senators that the Republicans have in 2025, if they have the presidency, could matter a great deal. Sarah and Amelia, how do you think about the national politics of this? Does a national abortion ban seem likely? Does a Democratic national legalization of abortion seem likely? In the short term, it will be up to the states. Do we expect in the medium and long term, it will also be up to the states? Starting with the tough questions, Galen. I mean, in the short term, no. Democrats don't have the votes in place to put a law that would protect abortion rights across the U.S. They are currently considering legislation 
that would do that. It goes too far for someone like Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski, two Republicans who do support abortion. There's a possibility that the Democrats eventually take up a bill that Murkowski or Collins put forward previously, but again, back to the filibuster math, they're not going to get to 60 votes to enact that. And in terms of McConnell and what he was saying about pushing forward and abortion restriction nationally, that also seems, at least at this immediate junction, unlikely. And we're going to keep seeing this play out in the states. And actually, I would say, you know, I think what's a little bit more interesting or pressing right now in terms of the landscape is it's not just abortion that is being restricted or banned in states. You know, increasingly it is discussions around different forms of contraception, whether that's plan B, the ability to get other types of medication for abortion. States are trying to outlaw that. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves was on CNN on Sunday, and he refused to rule out the possibility that Mississippi would ban other forms of contraception, including IUDs, which have been wildly popular for women who aren't seeking an abortion, but are just seeking not to be pregnant at that point in their life. And I think that is kind of where you're seeing more of the contours here than a national ban or law in support of abortion. Yeah, I mean, I think the tricky thing nationally for Republicans is that these state-level bans that we're going to see go into effect if Roe is overturned are so extreme. As Sarah was saying, they may end up kind of inadvertently or not inadvertently banning IUDs, Plan B, maybe other forms of contraception. Also, IVF is a big issue under some of these laws. I think We're just going to kind of have to see how it plays out because one of the things that's tricky about banning abortion is also that abortion is actually a procedure that happens in other contexts like miscarriage management. And so banning abortion has an impact on other areas of reproductive health. And if you have a law that says that providers can be fined a huge amount of money or sent to prison for doing these procedures, I think there is a question about like, are they afraid to do what could be categorized as an abortion for a person with an ectopic pregnancy, for example. The other factor is that a lot of these laws don't have any exemptions. So I think for national Republicans, they're kind of going to have to see how this plays out. I almost think that if we're talking about a national abortion ban in a few years, that we wouldn't see a full abortion ban, that we would see something more like a 12-week abortion ban, which is much more popular. And it could be something that gets introduced later if it turns out that what states like Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, you know, all these states that have very extreme laws turn out to go too far for Americans. And then if we're talking about something at the national level, that might emerge as a middle ground. I mean, I'm just spitballing, but at this point, given what we see on public opinion, we can talk a little bit more about the numbers. What is being proposed in some states right now is just so far outside the mainstream. I have trouble imagining that kind of legislation getting enacted at the national level, even if Republicans do have considerably more power in Washington. Okay, so sticking with the states and sticking with public opinion, how does the patchwork of restrictions that we would expect if Roe v. Wade were overturned, how does it map onto public opinion around the country? Because we know nationally that it's somewhere in the range of 60% or more of Americans who believe that abortion should be legal 
in most cases, approximately. There's like a million different ways to ask this question, and Amelia, you can get into some of the details there. But obviously, the state-level situation is very different depending on the politics of the state. Would abortion restrictions map pretty neatly onto public opinion? The New York Times published an interesting analysis last week that tried to answer this question, Galen, tried to map what does public support for legal abortion look like in states, and then they matched that up, I believe, just against the states that had trigger bans. And as one might expect, states that had restrictions, people living in those states tended to support banning abortion more. And that probably largely has more to do with the fact that these are, generally speaking, deeply Republican states, and the states where opposition to abortion was strongest in this time's analysis were in the Deep South. A state like Texas, they found that a significant percentage of Texans did not support abortion, but also because Texas is such a big, growing, diversifying state, has a number of big blue liberal cities, support for abortion there was higher than in a state like Mississippi, which has not experienced the same kind of demographic trends as Texas. And again, you know, I think something that Amelia has uncovered in her reporting is the way that pollsters ask this question just varies so much. And in general, if you kind of remove all of the different bells and whistles of like what week or under what circumstance, whether rape or incest or the mother's life being in jeopardy, the vast majority of Americans want some form of legal abortion. 85 to 90% in polls when you kind of strip away a lot of the different caveats that are often in play. And I think what's hard to unpack is even in deep red states, like the ones I was mentioning in the Times analysis here, that opposition to abortion is much higher. It doesn't mean that people living in those states want to outright ban abortion either. And I think that's what makes this conversation so incredibly tricky when trying to understand what support for abortion looks like. It's just not something most Americans want to think and talk about. I mean, there is a somewhat of a flip side here, which is that most Americans also favor some form of abortion restrictions. So the economists did a poll where they just asked people to pick from any of one, two, three, four, five, six categories. 23% of people said abortion should never be banned, but 21% of people said it should always be banned, which means the remaining 56%, it depends on when in the pregnancy you would be talking about banning it. Of course, other dimensions, even people that might favor bans after X number of weeks might recognize certain exceptions for that, but it isn't an issue where the median American necessarily is like someone who is in kind of the political sphere arena. I mean, people who are political elites, I'm not sure I love that term, tend to have very strong views on abortion and tend to be in one of those kind of 20 or 25 percent groups. The average voter is trying to navigate some type of middle ground. Nate's right in the sense that, you know, something that Amelia has seen in her reporting in the polls, right, is like support for abortion in the first trimester can be as high as 60% or more. But then in the second trimester, it drops pretty significantly to 28%, meaning that, right, most Americans do support some type of restriction on abortion. And I think we can kind of debate how much of it is this murky middle versus abortion just hasn't historically been a top issue for a lot of voters. It's something people don't want to really think about or talk about. 
and are kind of happy with the status quo of Roe. I mean, I think that's why poll after poll shows that most Americans don't want to overturn Roe, even if it's not necessarily in every poll, you know, an overwhelming majority. Yeah, I was going to say, people tend to prefer the status quo. So they may not know kind of all the details of what was in the Roe decision and what it codifies or allows or, or what regulations still take place. But they tend to be resistant toward change. And it's unusual when you control the presidency and the Congress that the other party or movement <laughs> gets a big change in its favor, right? And that kind of disrupts the usual dynamics of midterm elections where there's lots of debate. Why do we have a midterm curse, meaning the president's party loses seats? And some explanation for that is just people want to balance power after the other side exercises its power, even things that are theoretically popular might turn out to be less popular once they're actually enacted. And so this is a case where Republicans are gaining a lot of power. They're gaining it through the courts and they're gaining it through state governments. And in theory, that potentially, that changes the dynamic of a midterm election where it's often easier to play defense, (laughs) especially on issues related to reproduction and gender and sexuality. It's often easier to play defense, right? And now Democrats have to play defense because things are going to change a lot overnight in a lot of places, if the decision goes as the leak implies. I mean, I think the other thing to emphasize is just that questions about abortion, like when you're looking at them, you also have to bear in mind that people just don't know very much about this issue. So when you look at polls that ask about people's knowledge about when abortions happen, who gets abortions, what are the abortion laws in their states, they just don't know that much. And that like kind of makes sense. It's the type of thing that you think about if you need to get an abortion and people just kind of don't think about it otherwise. And they especially don't like it as a political issue. And one of the things in my conversations with people about this issue that's come up over and over again is also that they're pretty uncomfortable actually with being asked to draw these lines themselves. So I don't think it's that people are conflicted about the issue, but they don't necessarily think that it's their call or that it's lawmakers' call. And that doesn't always come through in polls. And I think it's honestly really difficult to pin down. You see polls where the overwhelming majority of people, when you ask them who should make the decision about an abortion, should it be a woman and her doctor or state lawmakers, they'll usually say a woman and her doctor. I don't think that necessarily reflects like broad state of public opinion about abortion either. But I do think it reflects people's discomfort with the idea of this decision being made in a really blanket way by lawmakers. I think that's why something like these total bans are pretty risky for Republicans in a way that something like a 15-week ban, which is actually what's at issue in the Supreme Court case and which has been passed in Arizona and Florida and a few other states this year, the vast majority of abortions happen before 15 weeks. And I think those kinds of bans have less political risk just because fewer people would be affected. And it doesn't have this kind of totalizing feel to it that something like the ban in Oklahoma, where abortions can only be performed in medical emergencies, definitely does. Nate, you started talking about the midterms a little bit, and I do want to get more into that. But before we get quite to how this could affect maybe turnout in a general election, Amelia, you mentioned that, for example, Florida has a 15-week abortion ban on the books that would go into effect if legal. 
Obviously, Florida is a Republican-controlled state, legislature, Republican, Ron DeSantis is the governor. There are other states, such as even Georgia, for example, that is fully Republican-controlled. They have, as you mentioned, a six-week abortion ban that would go into effect. There are various Republican-controlled states, New Hampshire is another one, where if they wanted to ban abortion in a post-Roe environment, they could. Will there be so much pressure within the Republican Party that, say, a state like Florida has to go back and outright ban abortion? Or will Republicans accept a 15-week abortion ban and allow a fully Republican-controlled government to sort of leave it in place? What are the politics within the GOP of this question? It's super interesting. And I mean, honestly, I don't know. The politics of this issue actually within the anti-abortion movement have changed a lot in the past few years. It used to be that every advocacy group within the anti-abortion movement wants to get to the eventual point of banning abortion. But there was a consensus amongst the kind of elite institutionalist groups that the best way to do this was sort of incrementally and partially that was structured around ideas of what the Supreme Court would do, that they would be more likely to sort of inch back when you can ban abortion rather than overturning Roe outright. Obviously, we are in a totally different place with the Supreme Court now. But part of that was also about public opinion. As Nate was saying, changing the status quo that we've had for the past 50 years is a really dramatic thing. And I think they have to know that a full abortion ban without exemptions for rape and incest is not super popular. So there was more of a push among corners of the anti-abortion movement to kind of go more slowly. What's changed in the past three or four years is that a much more extreme and sort of grassroots part of the anti-abortion movement has really gotten control in states. And they're the ones who are pushing things like full abortion bans, six-week abortion bans, which 10 years ago, Republicans were not considering at all, or they weren't being considered seriously. And there is a sense, like, can really actually make this happen. We can ban abortion. We can ban abortion fully. We can ban abortion at six weeks. And if we can do it, why wouldn't we do it? And I think it will be interesting to see how states like Florida, Georgia, Arizona, where they can do it if they want to, but I think the politics of this are really tricky and how that plays out. I don't know that it's a foregone conclusion that Republicans will decide that because of pressure within their own party, they have to go all the way and ban abortion really quite explicitly. Like everyone has known this year that the Supreme Court could ban abortion and 15-week bans are what we saw Florida and Arizona do. They didn't pass these six-week Texas-style bans, which they could have done. So I see that as a signal that at least some Republican politicians are wanting to tread a little bit more lightly on this issue. And I would imagine that the midterms calculus is part of that, at least in states like Georgia and Arizona. I think Republicans have been in a pretty maximalist mood lately in a lot of states. I think it's partly governed by the fact that you have a very competitive Republican nomination in 2024, and you have people like Ron DeSantis competing to be the nominee in 2024. You also have people like Brian Kemp in Georgia trying to fend off, I guess, more conservative gubernatorial primary challenge. And I think also like abortion for Republicans is an issue where they feel like maybe we are cashing in some of our capital. It's really important to Republicans 
and the Democrats, but it's like when Democrats would say, let's pass some health care bill, knowing it will probably cost us some seats. This might be something that you think it's worth kind of spending your capital on. For McConnell to say that he was considering an abortion ban, I mean, it's probably not narrowly helpful to him politically. I don't know if I read that much into that. He said it's possible in a sort of abstract sense, but yes. I do think, though, it's interesting, very different issue, but we see a similar phenomenon with marijuana legalization in the sense that it's actually very popular in a lot of red-leaning states, but you're not seeing the Republican Party and national lawmakers take that issue up at any time here in the near future. And I think abortion being kind of the flip side of that, you do see within the GOP, probably more so, I would say, than the Democratic Party nationally, the willingness to push on an issue because of what that means moralistically within the party versus where public opinion is on something. I don't have a crystal ball to kind of see how this plays out, but it's not far-fetched to think that some lawmakers will push outside of what's currently popular within public opinion in their own states. Right, because we should say here that based on reporting from the New York Times using data from the Public Religion Research Institute, Pew, and Guttmacher, that Floridians and Arizonans, for example, favor legal abortion by 10 points. Georgia, it's a little less. Alaska as well. Those are fully Republican-controlled states where the public is not even so ambivalent on abortion, they want legal abortion. There are other states in this category, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, for example, Kansas, where government is currently divided, mainly because there's a Democratic governor and a Republican-controlled legislature. But after the 2022 election, that may no longer be the case if a Republican wins the governor's mansion. In those states, not Kansas, but in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, again, legal abortion is quite popular. We can already see that it's going to play a role in those governor's races, or at least the candidates think so. Gretchen Whitmer has been leaning into it. The Democratic candidate for governor in Pennsylvania, because that's an open race, has been leaning into it. We've talked plenty on this podcast about how abortion historically doesn't necessarily shape these bigger races because it's too far down on voter priority lists. Has that calculus changed, even if nationally abortion politics don't necessarily come to the fore, in a state like Pennsylvania or Michigan, does it come to the fore? This is one question where, like, the question's about what are your biggest priorities. Something becomes a bigger priority when something major happens, right? Ordinarily, Inflation is not very high on voters' list of priorities when you have 8% inflation, that is, right? So I think abortion will be a salient issue at the midterms. It's not the only issue. Now Democrats get to counterpunch more, right? Republicans can pick the least popular Democratic slogans, you know, defund the police or kind of pick and choose kind of which issues they run on with respect to identity and race and everything else, right? But it really changes the equation if you have in lots of states active legislation efforts and just lots of news coverage about abortion. It's a different spectrum of issues in the GOP. If it's just trying to win elections and doesn't care about the consequences of those elections, we want to fight on. I think Democrats have had trouble convincing the public about threats to democracy posed by the GOP. Because they're all in the future, right? At the end of the day, insurrection attempt on January 6th didn't work. Trump's efforts to overturn the election didn't work. It came very close, such that if you talk to experts, they think it could work next time, right? But it's kind of hard to persuade voters about a future threat as opposed to 
a present one and maybe some of those other democratic messages also begin to ring truer when you are able to demonstrate for voters the consequence of Republican rule? I mean, that's something that I've seen consistently in polling. Most people, you know, at least until recently, I haven't seen super recent polling after the leak, but most people didn't think that Roe was going to be overturned in their lifetime. So when they're being asked a question about, you know, how would you feel if Roe were overturned? It was a hypothetical question for a lot of people. And I I think especially in states like Wisconsin and Michigan, depending on what happens with these unenforced pre-Roe bans, you know, whatever's going on with the politics in that state, we could see abortion clinics stop providing abortion because those bans are on the books and they don't want to be sent to prison under some law from 1850 that says abortion providers go to prison. If that happens, I think people will definitely notice and it will be brought to their attention in a way that something like all of these restrictions that we've seen over the past 10 years, you know, restrictions on clinics, restrictions on people getting abortions, those haven't been visible in the way that something like you actually cannot find a place in the state of Michigan to get an abortion would. I think I'm a little more skeptical in terms of some of this really making a difference here in the midterms election. And to be clear, If Roe were overturned, there's a lot of domino effects that I'm not fully appreciating because the landscape is so different in every state, as Amelia was stressing earlier. This was a national poll, but CNN did one post the leak opinion being released on Monday. They didn't really find any movement in terms of Americans saying that they wanted Roe to remain the law of land. It was still the majority that said that, 66%. But that was kind of roughly on par with other polls CNN had done prior to this. To some extent, I think it has to be more draconian measures at play for this to really be the energizing issue that puts people to the polls, just in the sense that abortion, as we were talking about earlier, just hasn't been a number one issue for a lot of Americans. I'm not sure that this is something that suddenly a lot of Americans rally behind. All right. Well, of course, time will tell and we will track it here on this podcast. Let's move on to Biden's performance amongst traditionally Democratic leaning voting blocks. Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. There's been a recent stream of polling and headlines suggesting that President Biden is struggling with groups that have traditionally favored Democrats by significant margins, in particular, young Americans and Black and Hispanic Americans. A recent Gallup poll showed his support dropping by 20 points since the beginning of his presidency with each of those demographics. Other polls back up that trend and show him falling by similar margins amongst Democrats overall. As a point of comparison, in 538's average, Biden's approval has dropped about 11 points among all American adults. Now, even in reliably blue states, the picture isn't great for the president. A new Boston Globe poll showed Massachusetts voters are net neutral on him. 46% approve, 46% disapprove. Massachusetts was Biden's second best performing state in 2020, going for him by 34 points. First of all, Nate, gut check. Is this a good use of polling? Do you think we have enough evidence at this point to say that Biden is doing disproportionately badly with Democratic leaning groups? I don't know if that framing is quite right. I mean, if you lose popularity, you have to lose it with people who you were popular to begin with. Otherwise, you didn't have it in the first place. Right. So if you go from 55 to 41 or whatever, right, you're going to probably lose more from groups that supported you originally. I think it's probably also the case. Well, you could lose from the middle too, right? You could, but you have less support in the middle. There's more support to lose if you're at, I mean, and we get complicated and you can kind of model this mathematically in different ways. Fundamentally, you tend to lose more support from the groups that support you to begin with. (laughs) That's not that unusual necessarily. Yeah, this was from a Brookings Institution report kind of looking at all of the different polls and where Biden has seen the biggest hit. And the thing that stood out to me is like it was still among Democrats, but those who were more of like the leaners, because remember, not every poll just asks, you know, are you a Democrat or are you a Republican? They try to capture Americans who say they're independents because a lot more Americans are saying they're independents now, even though they generally speaking still vote for one of the two major parties. And what they found is even though his support among Democrats had declined by 19 percentage points. It was 32 points among leaners and a gap among those who are strong and not so strong of 22 points. And so that just underscores to me that, yes, as you know, Nate was getting at, Biden is losing among core elements of his base, strong Democrats, but he's also losing a lot among like the leaners, the more independent types who, you know, in 2020 at least backed Biden look less likely to support Democrats here in 2022. Probably also the case that Democrats tend to be a little bit more willing to criticize their own party leadership than Republicans. What's the old Simpsons reference where Democrats, their slogans are like, we hate ourselves and we can't govern? No, it's like Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. (laughs) I don't know. This whole outsider, anti-establishment element of the Republican Party that's become maybe a leading part of its identity doesn't seem to fall in love with. Fair fair enough. I did want to compare this to Trump, though, because it seemed like throughout his presidency, even though his approval ratings were quite low, 
they remained extremely high with Republicans, and it ultimately was a hollowing out of the middle. And we didn't necessarily see that dramatic fall off with some of the most Republican-leaning groups. Wasn't there a period, though, where he was doing kind of poorly among Republicans? Trump, right, Nate? Or am I mistaken on that? Look, he fell down to like 37 percent at one point in his first year in office, which is lower than Biden's achieved so far. I mean, it's important to keep in mind that like Republicans are the smaller party, not a ton smaller, but meaningfully smaller. And one advantage of being smaller is that you are more coherent. There are not as many different complicated factions in the GOP, at least not along racial lines, it's a pretty white party that you have among Democrats, for example. So if you're small, then you can be more unified and less inclined to critique your leader. The question, though, is if you look at like the generic ballot where you give voters a choice, or if you kind of ask about hypothetical 2024 matchups, Biden versus Trump again, then that begins to look more like 50-50 again, right? Not quite. I mean, Democrats are behind if you points to the generic ballot. So what does that mean, Nate? I think it means that you have a lot of voters who are disappointed in Biden, but would never vote for a Republican in a million years. But maybe they just won't vote at all. Well, I mean, but that's why I think issues like abortion are important to keep your eye on, because abortion might be the issue that Democrats, you know, they're like, man, I'm really disappointed with Biden's handling of the pandemic. I'm disappointed with his handling of the economy. Black voters are disappointed potentially with the Biden administration and Congress's failure to deliver on all kinds of promises. Alex Samuels has done really good reporting on that for the site. And I mean, this disappointment, we've seen this for a while. Alex and I wrote a story a couple months ago showing that Democrats in particular, when Biden came in, they had really high hopes for him. And in particular, the fact that we're still dealing with pandemic, that the economy is not doing so well, that does seem to have disappointed people. But again, I do question whether those people, even if they'll say in a poll, Biden's not living up to the hype. I'm I'm not happy with his promise to restore the country to what it was before, if they're then going to say, okay, well, it's not worth me voting. I don't think they'll go vote for a Republican. This may help us get to the bottom of what is the cause of this lack of support amongst these Democratic-leaning groups in particular, as I mentioned, young voters, Black voters, Hispanic voters. Is it that they are disappointed in comparison to their expectations because they wanted environmental laws passed, student debt relief, they wanted healthcare expanded, they wanted to end the filibuster in favor of passing new voting laws, et cetera? Or is it that they're disappointed with the economy and inflation and all of the other things that rank sort of number one amongst voters overall? Is it disappointment from true and true progressives or that some of the broader issues are what's driving this? I think it's clear that the broader issues overall are what is driving Biden's abysmal approval rating. Like if you look at when he first had the dip in the summer of 2021, yes, a lot of that coincided with the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, which was incredibly messy and chaotic, but it was already happening before that. And that was largely in part because the shine was off in terms of his handling of COVID-19. They weren't prepared for the Delta variant. They weren't prepared for the Omicron variant. Testing was an issue. People weren't going back to work in the way that he thought that the country would by July 4th. Remember the vaccination rates promises. Like we've talked about that a lot on the podcast. That is present and real and part of it. 
To your point, though, Galen, I mean, he's lost support among younger Democrats as well. The conventional wisdom and reporting around that is right. The bigger, ambitious ideas that Biden ran on, he has not delivered. So I think it stands to reason that that group is unsatisfied with those promises not being met. But I think there's also then a group of Democrats, a group of independents who are not happy with some of these broader, bigger issues. And again, he's just simply lost more support among more moderate and conservative Democrats than he has among the very liberal. And so I think that's what kind of makes this playbook of like, what should he do next really challenging? Like there's a perception too among voters that Biden is now too liberal. So if he goes too far on some issues, does that shore up, you know, some elements of the very liberal part of the Democratic base? Probably, but it's also a very small percentage of that base. If he goes more towards the middle, is that enough to really energize or excite voters to turn out for the midterms? That's a fair question because it's not necessarily those middle voters that turn out in a midterm year. Well, and the question of what can Biden do is also a tricky one because when you're talking about something like inflation, his administration is trying to take steps to get inflation under control, but it's not like there's a switch they can flip and inflation goes down. And similarly with the pandemic, there have been a lot of criticisms of the Biden administration's handling of the pandemic, but this is also an incredibly difficult thing to get under control. Do you think, as Sarah was saying, there's a sense among some voters that Biden came in promising to kind of right the country, to make things feel normal again, to make things feel calm again. And he hasn't been able to deliver on that in the way that people want. But I don't know what Biden necessarily does about about some of the biggest issues just because there isn't a quick and easy fix for them. And obviously it's hard for him to say that because then it sounds like, why is this guy here at all? What's he doing for us? But I think that's kind of the reality behind some of this, that yes, some of this is about failures of his administration, but some of it is also about the continued fallout of the pandemic and economic challenges that weren't foreseen. And country is still kind of restabilizing and there's only so much he can do to make things feel quote unquote normal by November. It's also worth keeping in mind that young people are less engaged in politics in general, which means they're less partisan because most people who are engaged in politics are very partisan and can get revved up by the controversy of the day on MSNBC or that people are talking about Twitter, a young voter might just kind of be like, hey, things kind of suck. Maybe they're less persuaded about the importance of this or that Republican attack on whomever. And so they're kind of defaulting more toward indifference as opposed to suddenly being like radically opposed to the Biden agenda. It's certainly possible that they're hit a little bit harder by inflation. I mean, the big variables in inflation are like things like how often you drive if you have by a car, then that can make inflation work depending on like what type of way you heat your home. That can have a big impact. I think in general, people who are closer to the poverty line, but who do drive are probably in the worst shape out of anyone. I mean, this notion that like young people are unhappy about student debt. I think someone actually asked the Gallup pollster, like how many people you do this poll, thousands of interviews a month have said student debt. And like, we think one person did as a <laughs> verbatim response, right? It might be useful because if you were to suddenly tell someone that we're going to wave away $10,000 or more of debt that you owe, I mean, that would probably make the most people take notice and be pretty happy. It's about 14% of voters have some type of student debt, but it's not the kind of MSNBC issue of the day that I think is motivating voters as much. Y'all were saying earlier, 
Biden promises a lot, promises some return to normalcy and doesn't really deliver. And in some ways, being less engaged in politics, young people are less inclined to buy Biden's excuses, which is that, hey, you know, Jill Manchin, it's hard to get much done when you don't have very big majorities, right? They may just be kind of disappointed and not buying into like the talking points that would allow a voter to to remain loyal to the president. To that point in the Gallup polling that I was looking at, Biden's approval has fallen by only five points with people 65 and older, and it's fallen 23 points with people aged 18 to 29. So I think it might be worth asking the sort of flip side of the question, which is why haven't older voters soured on Biden? And is it just that older voters have well-trod partisan allegiances? Well, I mean, one thing that I think is worth remembering is that younger voters were not all that excited about Biden to begin with. So I was going back and looking at some articles that we wrote during the Democratic primary. There was one by Harry Bacon Jr. looking at how Biden was doing among young voters compared to some of the other candidates. And young voters were just not excited about him. I think that started to change once he became the nominee and the general election came up and there was this sort of big focus on defeating Trump. But I don't think he, among younger voters, sort of had this longer standing sense of goodwill. I think it was easier for younger voters to be disappointed by him and to say, oh gosh, you know, this guy I, I like never really liked already came in with all these promises, hasn't delivered on them. I guess I was right. Yeah. People kind of go back and forth between choice mode and referendum mode. I mean, it's kind of a cliche, right? Um, Biden is a guy who is old and has old mannerisms, right? You know, even Bernie Sanders has, I think, developed <laughs> certain ticks that endear him to young people a little bit more, maybe. And Biden is kind of like snippets of that. I mean, I think the kind of campaign tries to portray him as like your favorite uncle or grandpa or something like that, right? But that may only kind of help you in in choice mode. I mean, again, I, I do think that the Republican Party that exists right now is not a Republican Party that's very appealing to these groups in particular. You can imagine one that was, but especially with the pushes on reproduction and gender and sexuality, right? I mean, this is kind of like all of a sudden the 1980s, 1990s Republican Party again. And so that's maybe different than a GOP that's more defensive and kind of cherry picking the worst excesses of the left, right? You know, this is not a Republican Party that I think have a lot of appeal to at least certain types of younger voters. It's interesting almost when we had a conversation on this podcast about the French election, Marine Le Pen was proposing ending income tax for French people under the age of 30. So like making a very obvious pitch to younger voters. And it seemed to work to a certain extent, like she got significant support from younger voters. You don't see that as much amongst Republicans, making clear and obvious pitches to younger voters. My question here is, during the Trump administration, we asked a lot of times, you know, what could Trump do to right the ship? And I think a lot of the times it was like temper the extreme parts of his behavior, play to the center a little bit more was our analysis oftentimes. In this scenario, what can Biden do? I mean, he can do things, but they carry risk. You know, one reason why the student debt conversation is happening, well, one cynical reason is because a lot of people in the political class who are often people who high educational attainment, medium incomes, 
would benefit <laughs> from this policy. But also it's something that, in theory, the executive branch can do on its own. Now, given Republican courts, I mean, you have to imagine it might be challenged. I haven't examined that scholarship that much. I think the consensus seems to be that it's probably legal, but sometimes things that are probably legal, it gets still struck down by courts anyway. But it's something that he could do if he felt like he had to do something. I mean, there is still a reconciliation bill. That, again, though, I know we're being a little bit redundant at this point, but something like abortion gives Biden the ability to say, we just need to have Democrats in power to hold the line, which is traditionally not the argument that a party makes when it's in power. It's not what activists want. I mean, you'll probably see some debates, right? And by the way, in addition to overall Republican extremism, you're also going to have individual candidates who say and do stupid things, right? Or things that turn off swing voters. And so as the Senate and gubernatorial candidates become more prominent in the public's mind, there'll be more opportunity to kind of have a villain of the day on MSNBC, et cetera. And I think even people who are optimistic about the GOP's chances this cycle say that they are going to have some misses as far as candidate recruitment, where they are nominating someone who's more extreme, who is less polished, or both. And that will both kind of reduce their chances in individual races and create fodder for general discussion. It's a tough question, Galen, because I think right now, as Nate was getting at, there are kind of two paths forward for Biden. And it does seem, based on his State of the Union address earlier this year, he has decided to try to take the more centrist path, which has kind of bubbled up in various discussions here in the last year. I'm thinking here, election analyst David Shore kind of talking about Democrats have this popularity problem. You've seen other analyses come out that make this point that Democrats are perceived as too liberal. They're not winning that culture war. Republicans actually stand a little bit more to gain there. But by the same token, I think what we're seeing increasingly in our politics is that both parties have a very active base that is incredibly polarized in comparison to the rest of the electorate. And they have demands and desires. And it's on the politicians to kind of, you know, see how to meet those. And so is that who will actually turn out to vote in the midterm election? That's the big question here, right? And I do think, thinking back to earlier, we were talking about how enthusiasm has been lower among Democrats in the polls. But 2018, you know, was a historic midterm turnout year. 2020 was a huge turnout year. We seem to be in an era right now of people getting out to vote. And that doesn't mean that Republicans won't have the advantage here in 2022. But I do think what we were talking about earlier with abortion is probably more of an open question than I give it credit for. We saw, for instance, with Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Supreme Court in 2018, that had an effect in Senate races that generally seem to have helped Republicans in those red states. You know, maybe Democrats do stand to gain from that here in 2022. It's just, I think there's two competing theories of the case. And I think as an observer of that, I'm increasingly muddled around historically a candidate that is more moderate and perceived that way does better. But if the two parties' bases are increasingly polarized and energized by issues that aren't in the middle, does that cost politicians like Biden who then try to be more moderate and get nothing done? I know that's really well said, Sarah. Sarah, that is a great question. And I guess time will tell. We're not supposed to end on a question, but because politics never ends, we're going to. So we'll leave it there. Thank you, Sarah, Amelia, and Nate. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, Galen. 
My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari Curtis and our intern Emily Benezki are on audio editing. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.